0: Welcome to The Boiling Frog, where we contemplate the intersection of politics, economics, psychology, history, and science. I'm Seth Rosenblatt. And I'm Mark Olbert. You know, this is the second part of our two-part series on taxes. On our last podcast, we reviewed the different types of taxes and the pros and cons of each type. Today, we're going to discuss the practical
1: implications of tax policy. As we outlined in our very first podcast, and have referred to many times since, Communities enable their members to do far more than they ever could as isolated individuals. But to have a functioning community, you need a way to fund
0: its operations, which means you need taxes. And the problem, though, with discussing taxes, in a political context at least, is that it's framed as good versus bad, high taxes versus low taxes. But what's really critical to discuss is why we tax ourselves in certain forms not to mention the trade-offs
1: between different ways of implementing a tax system. So, if you didn't listen to our previous podcast, Greenbacks, we really recommend you do so before you're listening to this one.
0: And as we delve into the practical implications of tax policy on this podcast, we'll spend some time with the lessons learned right from our home state of California, from one of the most talked-about political events in U.S. taxation history, and that was Proposition 13. As we discussed in Greenbacks, tax systems don't get
1: designed from the ground up. Instead, they just grow and evolve over time as communities, their economic power, and their needs change.
0: And taxes also predated most of the academic study in the field of economics. Which is why every tax system
1: I'm familiar with is a hodgepodge of different mechanisms, each with its own advantages and disadvantages.
0: You know, how taxes are viewed in the U.S. is actually a pretty good example of the boiling frog effect, right? I mean, we got to our present situation gradually over time, and now we wonder, you know, why we're here. In our politics,
1: taxes get viewed as somehow evil, which kind of complicates having a legitimate debate around our portfolio of the type of taxes we use and their general level.
0: Nowadays, though, we are in a better position to view taxation from what we might call a portfolio perspective and understand all of these various issues
1: and maybe even try to redesign the system where necessary to make it better, whatever that
0: may mean. You know, I think it's also worth mentioning that what constitutes a tax doesn't have a clear cut boundary either. I mean, for example, in our previous podcast, we touched on the gray area of user fees for certain kinds of public services.
1: A great example of which, at least in California, are sewer fees. These are legally mandated fees for service, but they're generally collected like they are in San Carlos, where you and I live, through the property tax system. And the law provides ways for residents to block changes to sewer fees made by city councils through a mechanism that's sort of similar to a traditional tax plebiscite.
0: One of the interesting consequences, I think, of taxes having evolved over time as communities change is that it helps kind of reinforce the notion that taxes are somehow this inescapable evil. Hence the old saying, which groups death and taxes, which is not meant to be a positive. (laughs) Right. Although it's an odd equivalence when you consider that if any of us stop to think about it, I mean, some mechanism has to exist to pay for services, you know, roads, sewers, police and fire protection. I mean, these are all essential to the function of any community.
1: Granted, what we think of as public services weren't always deemed best handled by community-wide efforts. As I recall, every mountain pass into California was once a privately owned toll road.
0: And I recall you're telling me that in Imperial Rome, Fire protection was provided through fire brigades that property owners contracted with privately.
1: (laughs) And who were commonly thought to go around setting fires when business was slack.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Which may be why communities created this whole concept of public services in the first place. You know, they were more reliably provided, certainly more universally delivered, you know, when they were provided by the community rather than private organizations.
1: Some services also significantly improved community health and safety when they were made public, so it made sense to make them mandatory and funded through taxes.
0: Yeah, sanitary sewer systems, right, are a great example of this. I mean, nowadays, no one in their right mind would want to live in a densely populated community (laughs) if their neighbors were allowed to dispose of their sewage by just burying it or dumping it on or near their property.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, which is why I've always liked the Oliver Wendell Holmes quote, I do not mind paying taxes, for with them I buy civilization
0: but we tend to think that all taxes have been around forever. Indeed, some of these taxes we have today have been around a long time, while others are relative newcomers in modern society.
1: One of the earliest types involved taxing activities that do enrich a community, but were not internal to the community, like excise taxes on goods imported across borders by entrepreneurs who had learned how to make money moving goods over longer distances.
0: On the other hand, income taxes were a fairly late development probably because they were more difficult to administer in a pre-industrialized society, and and frankly, not too meaningful when most everyone was essentially living hand to mouth.
1: The history of income taxes, at least in the U.S., is a particularly interesting tale. They'd been enacted and repealed fairly quickly several times in response to crises, but what really drove their long-term adoption was the Industrial Revolution.
0: Yes, generating massive amounts of income and wealth from industrialization required bigger and denser communities, which in turn created a much greater demand for public goods and services. So
1: as the early industrialists made their fortunes, concern arose that they were not paying their fair share of funding the services the rapidly expanding community they needed to create that wealth demanded.
0: Yeah, we discussed in our Corporate Personhood podcast, you know, how the creation of corporations was these fictional but legal entities. Clearly enough people thought they weren't paying their fair share of the costs of running the community.
1: The political forces which first enabled the creation of the U.S. income tax are recurring today in response to our embrace of economic libertarianism and the concentration of its payoff in a relatively small number of hands. It'll be interesting to see if this presages a significant overhaul of our tax system.
0: Well, you know, as Mark Twain allegedly said, right, history doesn't repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. (laughs) You know, Mark, as we discussed in our last podcast, conversations about taxes are unfortunately reduced to discussions of good versus bad, you know, high versus low, without starting with what we should be discussing, which is what public goods we want and how much we value those. That's right. If you think only about costs,
1: all economic transactions look bad. To analyze any economic transaction you have to look at both costs and benefits. We can have debates about what is a public good and how much should be invested in it, but that's all part of market capitalism as we discussed in our very first podcast.
0: But we have to recognize that valuing public goods is inherently difficult. For example, how do we put a price on the value that all of us receive from services that are provided to everyone like education or healthcare or roads or even high-speed rail?
1: (laughs) But however hard it is, we have to put some kind of price on those services.
0: And that price is, in essence, the tax rate we pay, how high or what percentage we pay in taxes against our wealth, our income, or our transactions.
1: There is no doubt there's a fundamental trade-off between increasing government revenue to fund programs and the political viability of such tax rates, because all taxes introduce some form of friction into market capitalism.
0: And it should go without saying, but we continually need to emphasize that high tax rates do not equal socialism right? It's just a different perspective on what is a public good versus a private good.
1: Politically, of course, elected officials need to make the case that tax receipts are being spent on desired public goods or are otherwise addressing issues with capitalism like the externalities or structural unemployment factors we discussed in our first podcast.
0: Or on initiatives to reduce friction in the system to make capitalism more efficient, like regulations around those nutritional labels that we also discussed in our first podcast.
1: The tax rates themselves can also be used to achieve some other form of political goal, like high tariffs imposed to protect the local industry or sin taxes to discourage use, or things like gasoline taxes, which, among other things, try to incorporate externalities into individual economic decisions.
0: No, but Mark, a great example of how analyzing tax rates can go awry involves something called the Laffer Curve. It's actually named after an economist, Arthur Laffer, L-A-F-F-E-R, but it has a very faulty premise.
1: For our younger listeners, this is the theory that lower taxes increase economic activity so much they would actually increase overall tax revenue. It's the basic supply-side argument for lowering tax rates, part of another theory called trickle-down economics.
0: But in real life, this hasn't played out. I mean, certainly in the U.S. When we've lowered tax rates then tax revenue, surprise, surprise, goes down as well.
1: (laughs) Probably because, generally speaking, changing taxes for wealthier individuals and corporations doesn't really change incentives and economic
0: activity all that much. Certainly not as much as changing the tax rate on lower-income people would.
1: So cutting taxes at the top of a progressive tax system doesn't follow the Laffer curve.
0: But of course, there is some tax rate change that I guess could make a difference, right? If income taxes were close to 100%, then yeah, there'd be little incentive to work at all, or certainly a giant incentive to hide your income.
1: (laughs) But at the kind of tax rates we have in the US, we aren't anywhere close to that level, which is why I always thought it was ironic the theory was called the Laffer Curve, because it's really pretty laughable.
0: You know, and our history has shown that relatively high marginal income tax rates don't depress economic activity the way many conservative economics and politicians have historically predicted. As long as you can still make some money, it still pays for wealthy people to continue to work, to invest, all of which helps drive economic growth.
1: There's one more important issue about tax rates. We can't ignore the fact that political debates about them are rarely objective. We all start them by representing our self-interest.
0: It isn't easy paying green. Yeah, I mean, everyone involved, whether it's the politicians themselves or those putting political pressure on them, or even your favorite podcast hosts are all personally (laughs) affected by taxes.
1: Most of us have a harder time visualizing community interests as opposed to our own self-interest, so we are quick to defend the latter over the former, even though few of us could do as well without being part of a high-functioning community.
0: Mark, let's turn to a really important case study that highlights a lot of the issues we discussed in our previous podcast as well as just now. This is Proposition 13, which was an initiative passed by California voters in 1978 that changed the California Constitution and the state's relationship with taxes.
1: I think we should start by describing what things were like before it was passed. Prior to 1978, local jurisdictions in California, like cities, schools, what have you, directly levied property taxes on the residents in their jurisdiction to fund public goods and services.
0: Of course, many of these jurisdictions overlapped. As a resident, I would be in the jurisdiction of a city, a county, an elementary school district, a high school district, maybe a special district, and it's all a Venn diagram. You know, my neighbor could be in the same city, but in a different school district, and therefore have a different overall property tax rate as a result.
1: But there were definitely some benefits to the pre-1978 system.
0: I think the main thing that people refer to is the fact that it encouraged and reinforced local control and local accountability. It was clear that local officials made decisions that affected their community, and it was clear to voters who was responsible for that.
1: And as a result, schools and cities could be well-funded if communities were wealthy enough, and doing so was considered a local political priority.
0: But we do have to admit that there were some problems as well with this pre-1978 system. The first being is that there was definitely an inequity between rich and poor wealth areas, And this is, of course, still true in many other parts of the country that fund their schools and other local services from property taxes.
1: But the big political issue at the time was the fact that as property values climbed, especially for seniors with lower incomes, the tax burden kept
0: increasing relative to their income. I guess what happened is that, in effect... By happening to have made an investment in their home that paid off spectacularly, some homeowners ended up facing a severe cash flow crunch because they couldn't easily monetize their increased wealth. They were effectively land rich but cash poor.
1: This drove California's famous taxpayers' revolt led by a man named Howard Jarvis.
0: And he and many others wanted to stop local governments from collecting higher and higher property tax rates.
1: And he argued in part that it just wasn't fair to anyone who saw their property value rise, but whose income didn't keep pace, which particularly describes the situation most older homeowners find themselves in.
0: You know, Mark, I don't think either you or I were in California in 1978, but it does feel like there could have been other solutions at the time that weren't as dramatic as what the Prop 13 proponents were proposing. You know, I'm not sure if they were considered men at all senior property taxes could
1: have been capped or property taxes could have been capped based on some kind of percentage of income.
0: Right. I always thought that governments or even private entities could step in and to have been more aggressive with reverse mortgages, effectively to allow people more liquidity from their homes.
1: But in large part, I suspect the alternatives weren't seriously considered because the powers that be just didn't believe Prop 13 would pass because they knew how drastically it would suddenly curtail local public goods and services. Boy, were they
0: wrong. In any case, there wasn't enough political momentum behind those ideas, which would have been more of a surgical scalpel than a sledgehammer to the system. So Californians passed Proposition 13 on June 6th, 1978. And it
1: contained two major provisions. The first was that property taxes would be capped at 1% of assessed value for both residential and commercial property.
0: In addition, assessed values could only significantly change when a property was sold. If someone simply maintained their ownership in that property, the assessed value could not increase by more than 2% per year, regardless of how the actual market value changed.
1: Those provisions became very significant over time. For example, in San Carlos back in 2015, the median assessed value of a single-family home was just over $700,000, while the median market price of a home was north of $1.5 million.
0: Yeah, I mean, Mark, I've been in my house for over 25 years, and the assessed value of it for the purpose of calculating property taxes is only about a third of its actual market value.
1: (laughs) It's worth mentioning that while Jarvis and the others were the face of Proposition 13, most of the money used to fund the campaign to get it passed came from business interests. We'll come back to why they did that when we talk about the legacies of Prop 13.
0: Also, Prop 13 created higher hurdles for either the state legislature or local governments to impose, you know, any new taxes. It required a two-thirds supermajority of the legislature to increase state taxes. And it also required the same two-thirds majority of residents locally to pass a local tax, specifically what we think of as a, a parcel tax, which is a flat amount tax on each parcel of land. And the impact of Proposition 13 was felt immediately. The first and most obvious one was the significant reduction in property tax, right? No surprise. The receipts statewide were cut by more than half. I think it was actually 57%.
1: But the second and less obvious impact was the way it completely upended the structure of how taxes were collected and the local control citizens had to make that political determination.
0: Yeah, I think that point is really underappreciated, Mark. I mean, because people need to keep in mind that prior to Prop 13, everyone's total tax was determined by the total of these various taxing agencies' levies. And since we all lived in this messy Venn diagram of overlapping agencies, after Prop 13 passed, there was really no kind of fair way for a community to decide which of their taxes got lowered. So then all were reduced by a proportional amount.
1: In other words, residents after Prop 13 was passed couldn't say, for example, we want to fund the schools more than the city parks. There was literally no way to do this because Prop 13 was a public policy sledgehammer.
0: So in addition to taxes being overall reduced, the proportional way that property taxes were allocated by all of these local agencies in 1978 was then essentially frozen in time forever.
1: So political decisions made by communities back in the 1970s still, to some extent, define and definitely affect the public services that get provided by those communities today.
0: Yeah. And as school districts in aggregate were the most dependent upon property taxes, I mean, cities are too, but they can also have state sales taxes. These schools were the most stuck. And that's why California became one of the lowest funders of public education among the 50 states.
1: There have been some tweaks to the system over the last 45 years to mitigate some of these things, but none have really fundamentally changed the overall impact.
0: Another underappreciated impact of Prop 13 was that the overall burden of taxation had to shift from the local level to the state because property taxes weren't enough to adequately fund schools anymore, which was necessary because in California, providing public education is guaranteed in the state constitution.
1: In the end, every California homeowner woke up on June 7th, 1978, owning a house worth much more because its carrying cost had suddenly gone down dramatically.
0: Which is why I like to describe Proposition 13 as California homeowners voting themselves a subsidy, a subsidy from future residents of California to themselves, (laughs) the current residents.
1: That's right. Prop 13 was a massive wealth transfer to then residents of California from the people who hadn't moved there yet or hadn't been born yet and who weren't able to vote on the change.
0: You know, when you and I were both public officials, we were asked many times why we just can't get enough of us together to overturn Prop 13, and reversing that subsidy is the core of why it would be difficult to overturn. Not many people are going to vote to give a subsidy they currently benefit from to people who haven't moved here yet, (laughs) right? Let alone be willing to lower the value of their house now by increasing its carrying cost.
1: Seth, let's move beyond the immediate historical impacts of Prop 13 and discuss what it means today to us as homeowners and residents. For one thing, the cap on property tax rates does lower the cost of home ownership.
0: I mean, it certainly does. I mean, I have family on the East Coast that have homes worth a fraction of mine, but actually pay more in property taxes.
1: <laughs> one of the stranger legacies of Prop 13 is how everyone in any community is treated unequally. It's quite common to find seemingly equivalent properties that pay radically different property taxes.
0: Yeah, even similar homes right next door to each other can pay a very different amount in property tax. And very few people think that's a fair system.
1: (laughs) When I was on the school board, every time we put a local parcel tax measure before the public, which is allowed under Prop 13, I'd always get emails from recently arrived homeowners who were astounded we needed to ask for more money. I always told them to ask their neighbors how much those neighbors paid in taxes and they'd see why the increase was needed. (laughs)
0: And I also had a hard time explaining to members of the public that, unlike almost everywhere else in the country, with a few limited exceptions, what they paid in property tax had no relation to how much our schools got. This was another consequence of shifting the burden from the local level to the state.
1: Another unusual legacy stems from shifting school funding from the local to the state level.
0: Yeah, because this made education funding much more dependent upon state sales and income taxes
1: which, as we discussed in our previous podcast, are highly dependent on the overall economy, making school funding affected by economic booms and busts. This contrasts with the earlier system, which relied pretty much solely on property taxes, a form of wealth tax, which isn't affected much by economic cycles.
0: And it should be obvious that the demand for most state or local provided services, and including education, doesn't vary depending on how well the overall economy is doing.
1: <laughs> Whether GDP is going up or down, you still need fire departments, police departments, and even people to pick up the trash.
0: So when Prop 13 rolled back, capped, and constrained property taxes, all public services immediately came under the gun. And while the proponents of Prop 13 argued that there was enough waste in public spending, which could be cut to offset the reduction, reality was often quite different. People just
1: didn't want to see essential services cut back.
0: And just like we discussed in our podcast on waste, fraud, and abuse, one person's waste is another person's vital public service. The net
1: result was that while public spending did decrease, Things like income and sales taxes were increased to compensate. This then gave California the reputation of being a high-tax state, which we'll dive deeper into in a couple of minutes.
0: But what it really did was just change the portfolio of taxes and place a different set of burdens on the community.
1: In particular, as we mentioned in our previous podcast, sales taxes are really pretty regressive.
0: The poorer you are, the greater share of your income you have to spend on things that are subject to tax. And income taxes, even though they are structured
1: so that higher-earning people pay a higher percentage rate, avoiding some of those regressive effects, are inherently quite sensitive to economic activity.
0: So the net result is California now has a system of funding schools and other public services with these cyclical sources of revenue, meaning that just when a contracting economy is putting more pressure on community members who might therefore have a greater need for public services, the money to pay for those services is reduced. Some conservatives
1: like to argue that solving this conundrum merely means communities need to maintain adequate reserves to get through the inevitable downturns.
0: Yeah, but Mark, doesn't that argument ignore the political pressures that come into play when a community looks to put aside money? It certainly does. For
1: one thing, while governments, at least ones that can't print money, don't want to and in fact can't spend more money than they take in over time, they also don't want to spend anything less than what they do take in. Every dollar saved for the future is a dollar that can't be used to address a current community need. And the reality is communities always have more needs than they have resources to meet them.
0: And any government that takes in more money than it spends would then come under pressure to cut taxes anyway.
1: (laughs) Which creates an interesting situation where the same conservatives who demand balanced budgets can end up being the people demanding tax cuts when tax monies are set aside.
0: So bottom line, the much greater volatility of income-based taxes exacerbates many aspects of having a reasonably smoothly-running government. Seth, let's talk
1: about another implication. We discussed earlier how assessments were only reset when a property was sold and that that dynamic favored businesses. So another legacy of Prop 13 has been this long-lasting de facto subsidy of businesses. Their properties change hands less frequently, and even if a company does change hands, it's easier for businesses to avoid property reassessments because they can sell the stock in the company and not the assets, which includes the real estate.
0: no coincidence, then, why you mentioned earlier that corporations were the biggest funders of the Prop 13 campaign.
1: (laughs) Yeah, gee, I guess it isn't a surprise after all. Lastly, as we like to discuss the intersection of economics and politics on these podcasts, we have to point out that, ironically, Prop 13 turned out to be a very anti-democratic measure.
0: It was voted in by a direct democracy process, but as we discussed in our podcast on voting and democracy, there are serious flaws with public initiatives.
1: Yes. And Prop 13 is a good example of this, because while it did cut property taxes, it dismantled a more democratic system, one where local officials were responsible for setting local tax rates,
0: and then voters could hold those officials accountable
1: for the use of the money.
0: And now there is literally no connection between what I pay in this wealth tax, what I see on my property tax bill, and the services I receive from that. And therefore, the public really has little leverage to hold local elected officials accountable for what they do and what they spend. So given those consequences, most of which were not anticipated, let's discuss what residents of California have done in response to both the intended and unintended effects of Prop 13.
1: There have been some attempts to repeal it, but they've basically gotten little traction.
0: No surprise, given the reverse subsidy issue we mentioned earlier, that repealing it would entail. In fact, if you poll people
1: today, there is almost as much support for Prop 13 as there was back in 1978.
0: And that's in fairly liberal California, right? <laughs> there, there have been a few new laws passed, right, including one recently to fund additional arts education in schools, as well as some previous ones that put some minimums on state funding in schools. But they really only poke around the edges of the problem.
1: In many wealthier communities, particularly where you and I live in the San Francisco Bay Area, residents have taken matters into their own hands. These communities now pass their own parcel taxes and have started their own community foundations to raise private money to fund public schools.
0: And we can't begrudge them for doing that. I mean, ours is one of those towns. But we have to recognize that what we're doing is effectively returning to the inequities of the pre-Proposition 13 days, but just at a lower level of funding for everyone.
1: (laughs) Yeah, effectively the worst of both worlds.
0: So are there any real structural long-term solutions here? I mean, we basically just postulated that the public will never repeal Prop 13. So what else can we do? The most
1: talked about solution is something called a split roll, where we compensate for the fact businesses only sell property infrequently by reassessing their property more often.
0: Historically, political efforts to do that have also failed, but I feel like there has been some growing support over the years to, to do something like that. So maybe it's possible.
1: Another approach is that the legislature can earmark greater funding for school districts and communities with greater needs.
0: They have done that to some extent with a new formula on how state money is distributed among local school districts. But
1: as I recall, it doesn't really go nearly far enough to compensate for other disadvantages some of those
0: communities face. No, absolutely right. When I was leaving our local school board, I mean, we started to discuss other creative ideas like how do we leverage other assets we may have in the community to make teaching more attractive, you know, since we were inherently limited and will remain inherently limited on how much we could pay teachers. And the most promising idea that came up was maybe partnering with cities and local developers to build low-cost housing for teachers or, you know, maybe housing for other public officials.
1: That idea is increasingly being considered
0: and acted upon throughout California. Mark, I'd like to go back to something we mentioned in passing before. It's considered common wisdom that despite Proposition 13, California is a high-tax state. Let's delve into that.
1: (laughs) That's certainly a meme that gets trotted out by conservative candidates for national office almost every election cycle. You know, but the data shows something different, right? Yes, it does. When you consolidate all the various taxes individuals pay that are levied by a state or by a jurisdiction within a state, sales taxes, property taxes, income taxes, and excise taxes, and look at that within the context of the overall gross domestic product generated within the state, California is not the highest tax state. In fact, it comes in at number nine, with an overall tax burden of slightly over 16%. Okay,
0: so, so who's the highest?
1: Oh, you probably should be able to guess that, Seth, from where you and I both grew up. <laughs> it's New York
0: at 22%. Okay, so then the lowest is... Uh, That one surprised me.
1: It's Tennessee at a bit over 7%. This actually highlights why we said you have to adopt a portfolio perspective when discussing taxes. The mix of the different types of taxes, whether they be wealth, income, or transaction taxes. If you just compare one type of tax between two different states, for example, you'll miss the overall impact of the choices communities make regarding how they choose to tax themselves.
0: Yeah, I mean, that issue has always bothered me. I mean, for example, in Texas, is largely thought of a low-tax state, and indeed, it has no income taxes, right? So, but guess what? It relies more on sales taxes and property taxes. So on those two charts, it ranks higher among, you know, among states.
1: But let's not go too far down this chain of argument, because talking just about overall tax burdens ignores the value of the public goods and services being provided by different communities. And those are not trivial. There are huge differences among the states and even within states.
0: This goes back to your point earlier about only talking about the expense side and obviously not the value side of what we do. And as an example of this, you know, I think regardless of what you think about the debate around healthcare reform in this country, if we did have some sort of public system, I mean, no doubt taxes of some sort would increase, but so would services. So you can't compare one system of taxes to another without also comparing what you get out of it.
1: Which is why when people complain about living costs in California, politically, they often talk about the high taxes. But the real problem is the high cost of property, which is due to a bunch of other factors.
0: Yeah, for sure. Housing availability and the high cost of homes and rentals are absolutely a real problem in the state. I mean, maybe it's a good topic for another podcast. (laughs) Yes, I suspect it will be.
1: There's a pretty good correlation between population density and
0: the cost of living,
1: irrespective of the level of taxes.
0: And that's probably why it's very expensive to live in the Northeast, for example.
1: And although California is a big state in area, it's also the biggest state in population. So overall, it ranks as the 11th densest state.
0: And going back to my comparison, Texas, on the other hand, ranks actually 24th in density among states right in the middle. That's why homes there are, guess what, bigger and less expensive. Right. The cost
1: of living difference is mostly not related to the level of taxes at all.
0: Okay, I think we've made our point. Taxes are a loaded political topic, hard to actually understand its nuances, too easy to reduce the sound bites, (laughs) and a topic where everyone has a self-interest, right? Often a short-term one.
1: And above all, it makes no sense to talk about tax rates without first discussing what you're getting in exchange for those taxes.
0: We need to understand and discuss the pros and cons of each type of tax and where each can be appropriate for a particular need and
1: perhaps give some thought to rationalizing our hodgepodge system, which, as we said, evolved over time with little or no overall planning.
0: And we have to repeat again that high taxes are not the same as socialism. Socialism is something completely different, and I refer people to our very first podcast where we go into more depth on that.
1: That's a really important point. For example, many on the political right argue that northern European countries are socialist, when in reality, they just put a greater emphasis on services they consider public goods.
0: Yes, the Danes pay something like 25% in sales taxes, which are both high and a pretty regressive tax regime. But guess what? They also get free higher education and free health care. I'm not saying one system is better than another. I'm just saying that's the kind of debate we should be having.
1: And I think the main lesson for our listeners is that when we contemplate tax policy and in particular changes to tax policy, we need to think through the secondary and tertiary effects. The unintended consequences of Prop 13, for example, are unfortunately a profound example of that.
0: I think the last lesson is that, of course, taxes and tax policy are important, but they aren't often as important as the political debate seems to make them. For example, as we discussed, there are many factors which affect one's cost of living. It's not just about your marginal income tax rate or the sales tax, you know, you paid for (laughs) your lunch.
1: Although it's true, California is a relatively high tax state, although not as high as people think it is it's also important to remember that if it was a nation, it would be the fifth largest economy in the entire world. Although we clearly have our problems, we've certainly made enough reasonable public choices about what we want to fund to actually promote a highly effective capitalist economy.
0: Mark, I think that's a good place to end this podcast with a little love note to California (laughs) from (laughs) self-described capitalist pigs. (laughs) Even if it did take us two episodes, however, to get through everything.
1: Well, since taxes are as certain as death, but perhaps even more complicated, that's not surprising.
0: (laughs) Okay. Well, thanks to you, Mark. And thanks to our listeners. Signing off, this is Seth. And Mark. Reminding you that if you have a big wealth tax bill, life can't actually be that bad.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Goodbye, everyone. See you next time. This podcast is copyright Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. All rights reserved. The Boiling Frog podcast is written, produced, and hosted by Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. Audio engineering and technical support provided by Caroline Olbert. Theme song composed by Benjamin Rosenblatt. Music arrangement and production by Mia Rosenblatt. For more information, resources, or to subscribe to this podcast, please visit our website at www.theboilingfrog.net.